Welcome to Learning in a Time of Corona, a slice of life podcast that explores the daily experiences of living and learning in Mumbai and Houston in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. In today's episode, we introduce ourselves and our two cities, Mumbai and Houston. We share with you the experiences people had at the very beginning of the pandemic. Through this episode, we hope to lay the foundation that helps us continue to unpack notions of place, power, and privilege throughout this podcast series. Hello. Hello. Welcome to our podcast. We are speaking to you from two places in the world, Houston and Mumbai. I'm, my name is Laurel, and I am in Houston right now. My name is Garvi and I'm in Mumbai. Yeah. How are you doing, Garvi? Um, good. It's the monsoon in Mumbai and it's my favorite season, even though the monsoon is a really hard time for a lot of people. It's still also really beautiful. So mm. good. You just recently moved back um, to your apartment that you were in when you first got there, right? Yeah, so um, Laurel and I are both university students. We both study at the University of Toronto. And back when Corona started happening, um, we both went back to our hometowns. I came back to Mumbai just when they announced um, that international flights to India were shutting. And I was quarantining in an apartment away from my family because I live with my grandparents, wanted to keep them safe. And I was just telling Lol about how funny it feels. This is my first time back in this apartment since that quarantine. And that was an extreme two weeks. Did not see a single other human person. And this was when Mumbai had just shut down and become super quiet. We couldn't order in food. There were no cabs on the street. And I'm kind of back in that headspace. And I keep having to tell my mind sort of this funny feeling of I feel back here and I feel like I'm not going to see anyone again for two weeks. What am I going to eat? Yeah. And all those things were big concerns for those two weeks. And of course, things are much more normal now. I can order in food. I can get a pizza when I'm hungry uh, and I can go outside. <laughs> I'm not quarantined. Like I'm not a danger to anyone else, which is a huge shift. Um, yeah. So my brain's kind of dealing with that right now. Yeah. And I, I was here in Houston before the, I mean, it was, we knew about it right? Um, we were talking about it when we were in Toronto still, but it hadn't really reached here in any kind of significant way. Um, yeah, y'all were making fun of me for having hand sanitizer. <laughs> look, look now. But I just got kind of stuck here um, because I was visiting family for spring break and I'm literally stuck here now. There's very few countries in the world that will accept Americans uh, coming yeah, so in right now. So... We wanted to make this podcast in order to capture this moment and how people are living and learning in Mumbai and Houston and how that's impacted by our individual contexts, our local context, and then also like how it, it intersects with systems and structures of privilege and oppression. And, um, and Mumbai and Houston are very different cities, um, but we're hoping that we can find show how there are so many similarities across boundaries and of course there are so many differences but those differences don't have to separate us necessarily um and tying both me and laurel together is the university of toronto where we're both from Uh, we're both doing our masters in education so we're both educators um I am studying, I'm doing my master's in social justice and education, and I'm doing my master's in curriculum and pedagogy, and we're both in the comparative international and development uh, education department, department, side, um, is what it's called. Yeah, so welcome to our podcast, and um, welcome to Houston and Mumbai. So before we get started with the more specific topics that we have going for today, um, 
we just thought it would be important to situate ourselves first and discuss our own positionalities so that you have more context for what we're talking about and the way that we frame what we're talking about. For me personally, I am a white settler. I use the pronouns she, her, and I was not born in Houston. I was actually born in Boston. However, at the ripe old age of two months old, I moved to Houston and I've been here pretty much ever since. Um, when I was 10 years old, we moved out to the suburbs um, on the north side of Houston. But then I moved back into Houston proper for uh, university and also for my teaching job out of, out of college. So I taught for four years. I taught science, high school science. And then I started my master's in Toronto. I consider myself a progressive politically. I want to be open about that so that you know that about me. Um, and that does end up shaping how I view things. I, on the other hand, am from Mumbai. And I was also born and raised in Mumbai. And I've lived here pretty much my entire life. I moved away for a little while for university. And then I moved to Toronto for my MN. But I was born and raised here. I grew up in Dadar in Shivaji Park. So I grew up in a, um, in an, in a, in not like a super wealthy area, but still in a very privileged area. Um, Mumbai is my home and I really love the city. I feel like it's, I'm mindful though of the fact that my experience of Mumbai is very different from the experience that a lot of people have in Mumbai, but, um, I've lived here a long time. My family has been here for generations. I feel like I'm very connected. Personally, I feel very connected to Mumbai, to the land, to the histories and to everything that shapes it. Um, I'm pretty centrist politically, especially in the context of India. Um, so you'll hear lots of both-sided opinions. I tend to be pretty centrist and sort of postmodernist in, in most uh, considerations in life, very sort of abyssal thinking. So this, yeah, they talk a little, little, bit, little bit more about what this podcast is about. Um, for anyone listening, you know that this year has been completely crazy for everyone. And COVID has been um, you know, upended life for most of the world. And all our world systems and we're kind of trying to capture that moment in time this moment in time um, through a slightly more critical lens and like understand how our lives are impacted and shaped by power and privilege and other things and of course we're also going to be talking about learning um, that is in the title, so I'm sure you expected it. Um, but we're defining learning more broadly than maybe a lot of people would. We're, of course, going to talk about formal education, but then we're also going to talk about community-based learning and then even individual reflection as well. We have engaged in conversations with teachers, students, parents, community organizers, just people on the ground right now. Um, just had them share with us their own personal experiences, and now we're here to share their stories with you. One of the first people I interviewed was Maria Gloria Borsa, a veteran AP Italian teacher in Houston who devotes her time to helping others in any way that she can, both in and out of the classroom. In our conversation, Maria Gloria described to me about how Houstonians responded to a past crisis. Hurricane Harvey. When the hurricane was over, we started rebuilding. Uh, I remember going to volunteer at the George R. Brown Center and being turned down because they said, we have too many people. We don't need any more people because a city like Houston, if there is an emergency, everybody does their part. Everybody gets together. This is a wonderful city for this. There is so much that I love about my city, about Houston. And one of those things is the fact that in general, in times of crisis, we come together and we help one another. And this time of crisis comes up a lot. Um, 
in terms of hurricanes, in particular flooding, even without a hurricane, um, happens a lot just because of how the city is structured. Um, and people come together. I mean, even businesses who would have no other, you know, incentive, um, they come forward, they offer um, their stores as shelters um, for people who have lost their homes. Um, hurricane Harvey in particular was a hurricane that occurred in 2017. And to me, it, it really demonstrated the way that we have the capacity to come together as a city um, in the wake of horrible devastation. But there's also a lot that is problematic about Houston too. Um, first of all, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm currently sitting on living on indigenous land here in Houston. Um, for thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Karankawa, the Atacapa Ishak, the Sana, and the Akokiza. And I think a lot of times I reflect on my personal education experiences in Houston. Uh, we neglect to acknowledge how colonization is not just a historical fact, but is an ongoing reality in which indigenous people continue to struggle for justice. So I know when we were talking about conceptualizing this podcast, we were thinking about it in terms of our hometowns, right? And so that's something I've had to reflect on a lot. What does it mean for this to be my hometown when it's located on indigenous land and I'm a settler. My friend and former co-worker Arquette Burton, an incredible high school science teacher with a sincere love for others, offered some great insight on how Houston is socially structured. Because like, if you, if you look at society, like the holding of the white flight and all of that that happened, a lot of whites separated themselves. Mm -hmm. So they created their own bubble. So unfortunately, a lot of people who don't see their white privilege are those people who created their own bubble out in the suburbs, away from the city, away from different cultures, cultures and um, like different um, people that are a part of different ec economic statuses. Because everyone who, was, who separated themselves were all a part of the same socioeconomic status. So they really didn't see it. Because we're all same color, we're in the same tax bracket, we all make around the same amount, we all have two and a half children and a dog and a cat, you know, so <laughs> like, all of us are pretty much the same. But then when you go to, unfortunately, the other side of town, where everyone is not cut from the same cloth, and they all look a little bit different, and you have a mixture of different cultures and a mixture of different races all together, that's when you can see the whole, the white privilege mm -hmm. and the, the differences amongst everyone. But when you separate yourself all from everyone, no, you can't see it. So for, for people who don't see it or who don't understand it, it's because that they grew up in a bubble, you know? And, and unfortunately, when they have that bubble pop and for someone to be like, what? wait a minute, what? Yeah, you know, it, it takes a while mm -hmm. because their entire life, they grew up in that bubble. So yeah. it's like, it takes a minute. So be honest with me. What do you think of when you think of Texas? <laughs> um, I guess I think of like cowboy hats and steak and, you know, just like this, the manly Texan man <laughs> and like cattle ranches, I guess. I don't know. I mean, these are all like terribly stereotypical things, but I... I know it can't actually be like that, but, you know, that's the first visual that comes to my mind. That is not just something you think. Um, that's something that a lot of people think of when they think of Texas. And I mean, that's not to say that we don't have those elements here, um, but Houston in particular is actually an incredibly diverse city. Um, as of a report that I read from last year, there's no single majority in terms of race or ethnicity. And so it's an incredibly diverse place. 
However, caveat to that, it is still a very much segregated place. So you can see that really clearly. We'll put the link on our website to these great maps that you can see so clearly the racial segregation that still persists in Houston and also how it intersects so clearly with income. Um, it's almost, it's one of those things where it's, it's shocking when you see it so clearly because you wish it weren't true. Um, but then at the same time, it's not shocking because you, you know, you read about it, but then just visually seeing it. Um, and, and that segregation leads to distance and that distance leads to lack of understanding. It leads to fundamental ideological rifts. And it also leads to really tangible impacts in communities and in schools in particular. My friend and former coworker Jeremy Williams spoke to these impacts and how race and income intersect with education. So when we talk, talk about like education, uh, people trying to make education something that's non-political, that, that, that's impossible. That's impossible to do in a country um, that was built literally to oppress a certain group of people um, and elevate another. Education is actually one of the most powerful tools that they've actually used to do that. When we think about the way funds are allocated based on property taxes, property taxes are determined based on neighborhoods, which are determined based on wealth. And most wealth in the country is earned by the most wealth in the country is, 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 is owned by um, white men in particular. And most of that wealth, a lot of that wealth was accumulated as a result of slavery and genocide of African-American and, and, and Native people. So, you know, you can't separate those two things. Yeah, one of the main sources of inequity that we talk about a lot here is the connection that there is between property taxes, which is based on property values, and then funding for schools. When I was speaking with Jeremy, something that he mentioned that I think was really powerful was the fact that we can't consider education separate from politics. Education has been designed in a very specifically political way and trying to treat it as apolitical, it ends up as an active erasure of the very real lived experiences of marginalized people. And it denies us the opportunity to make any effort to change that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's that rings true outside of the context of Houston or the United States as well, right? Education is, has, was such a big tool in colonization. Certain countries' education systems are continuously disenfranchised. Um, education is inherently political. It's so tied into how you're shaping and building a national identity um, and who gets access to what scripts. It's very hard to describe Bombay besides it's alive. This whole city is just teeming with so much life all the time. Um, so we do have, so there are some similarities with Houston, but fundamentally, I think the main thing that I would think of as a difference is that the, the split or the segregation is, is, is enacted again in quite a different way. So here in Bombay, we have a really big mix of demographics, classes, castes, religions, and it's one of the, I think it would probably be the most diverse city in, in India. Even though it's a diverse city, um, and you see that diversity out on the street every single day. So we don't have, um, we do of course, like every city has like slightly richer, slightly poorer areas and that kind of like, you, you do see that difference. But in comparison to like most cities I've seen everywhere, it's much more mixed, it's much more in your face here. 
um, and you do see the you do sort of see the stark contrast though like very very wealthy people and very very poor people living very different lives but in such close proximity to one another um, and yes yeah, so, I mean I'm a person with a lot of privilege in the context of Bombay so you know my my experience with the city is skewed I also have to acknowledge that because of language barriers and um, even the perspective of the people I've been able to interview is always going to be slightly skewed. It's a certain kind of Mumbaikar. And I feel like that's, that's very important for me to keep in mind and for like whoever's listening to keep in mind as well. I spoke with a variety of people from Houston about their experiences when the pandemic first hit. On March 12th, we were at school and we knew the COVID was going on. We knew that uh, um, schools were thinking about closing. I'm Italian, so I knew what was going on in Italy. And I was aware of the situation. I was aware that we were going to face an emergency. But we did not have yet uh, um, received like uh, official information about what was really the issue. The rodeo had just shut down and I had started in the previous 10 days to have my students disinfect all the desks because I was really aware that we were in classrooms sharing way too much that we were supposed to. You know, they closed the rodeo down, but we were in classrooms with sometimes 34, 40 people and we were still there. So going home, we received the news that schools were going to be closed. And at the beginning, it was fine because we were going to have spring break the week after. Then all of a sudden, the days of the spring break were finishing it, and, and, we, and we didn't know exactly what to do because the school was closed. So um, everybody started panicking. It was very hectic. Um, I remember we came back from spring break and we were there for about a week. And on that same week we got back on a Friday, they told us that, hey, you have like two days to basically like move out or just leave. Um, because we're going to stop like having food at the cafeteria, like no one's going to be here, everything's getting transferred online. And that was very hectic because it was just one random weekend to move out and everyone's parents are freaking out like, well, this is really sudden. Um, and just to go online so fast and just like have everything questionable, like, well, what's going on? Um, but it was just, it was just really hectic the way that it just got put on us like that. So. Yeah, that sounds like it really rushed. Seems like hectic is a perfect word for that. Yeah, I didn't actually get to move my stuff out of my dorm until May. Well, at first when uh, everything started, I will, well, we were still in school, you know, and it was just the rumors that was going around that they were gonna stop school, that uh, that things are gonna fall apart. And at that time I, I uh, I started playing baseball. I signed up to play baseball and I made the team like my first try and I was pretty proud of that. Yeah. And we had that that day, the last day when we had school and we had our final game was the last, uh, was a day, like hours later they said, okay, school is canceled to like the, uh, the, like for a week, two weeks. And I was like, oh, probably we're gonna go back but also it was my senior year, so I was pretty, yeah. pretty kind of like bummed about it. And I was like, okay, so I hope we go back and then we get our full graduation, we get our full, um, our like prom, our like the big events that like seniors look up or look forward to. But then unfortunately, like the they said, oh, we still have to be in quarantine. We still have to be in quarantine. You can't get out of your houses. So something that was really consistent in my conversations with people about how the beginning of the pandemic felt for them was that they felt 
like everything was really hectic. You know, there was inconsistencies in messaging, um, the it, uncertainty about whether businesses and schools were going to be open, are they going to be closed? You know, there was a lot that was just changing constantly. And that level of uncertainty was really earth shaking for a lot of people it resulted in a lot of anxiety. Yeah, I think that uncertainty was definitely paralleled in Mumbai as well. Um, so schools shut down, as I can hear. But I was wondering if along with, um, it's crazy, Katie was saying that they had two days to leave. That's mind boggling to me because how do you, um, if you're leaving, you know, how do students do that? But what I was wondering, like, aside from schools, were other things shutting down? Were like businesses shutting down? Vincent mentioned that there was a quarantine. So how did that work? Like, were you quarantined? So the decisions that were being made in terms of lockdowns or stay-at-home orders and all of these kinds of things were heavily politicized. They still are. Um, and we'll go into that more in a future episode, but essentially we never had a true lockdown. The most that we've had is that schools were, you know, shut um, in March and Everyone really expected, though, that they would come back. You know, it would just be brief. That happens a lot in Houston, actually, because of the flooding that I was mentioning before. It, we're not a desert. People think Texas is a desert everywhere. We're not. Um, and so we're used to those kind of periodic interruptions. Um, but this wasn't just going to be that simple, short interruption. And it was that realization that I think was really what caused a lot of anxiety for people and missing out on things that you thought you were going to get to do, particularly for those graduating seniors. Um, and then even just opportunities that now you've worked so hard to be able to, to have and, and it's just taken away from you from, with something that was out of your control. Um, it just creates a lot of feelings of helplessness, I think. So there is some precedent in Houston for stuff shutting down. So when they shut down for hurricanes, are they planned shutdowns? Because you know the hurricane is coming or are they like, oops, it's really rainy. We can't go out today. So we're really used to hurricane rain, right? And it really depends on what the forecast looks like. But then also... I don't know, Houstonians kind of have this like attitude almost of like, this happens so much that we're just going to see how bad it actually becomes and then we'll make a decision. Um, and so usually it's administration looking at, okay, what's the flooding situation looking like, right? Is it going to be safe for kids to come to school and teachers and everyone to come to school or not? And it can be a fly-by-night decision. I've been waiting at my phone before, like just at like 3 a.m., just trying to like see if we finally get an update, just refreshing my email, you know, um, it can it can really be those kind of last minute decisions. So that's not entirely unusual. But the idea of having to pack up all your things because you know that it's going to be at least a certain amount of time um, having to deal with the fact that a hurricane, you know, comes and goes but we don't know how long it's going to take for this to go. Um, and I think that's what makes it a lot more anxiety inducing. I think that's such a good, uh, that's so similar to Bombay as well. So Bombay is also associated with lots of flooding. We're a coastal city. Uh, we flood every single monsoon. That's like our thing. We're used to it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's generally unplanned for us because rains are, I think, a lot more variable than hurricanes. So there's very little. So if it's been raining a lot the day before and you know it's going to rain again the next day, then it's like, okay, no school tomorrow, or no office tomorrow. But I um, cannot tell you the number of times it's been raining and I've been at the place I'm supposed to be school or work or whatever it is. And then they shut it down and then you have to find your way home. And this city runs on um, public transport pretty much. So all of that gets waterlogged. That train lines get waterlogged and trains stop. Um, so we're used to that kind of um, stoppage sort of to like daily life. 
but yeah the unprecedentedness um and for mumbai i'll i'll talk about the silence i think that that was unprecedented even when we have monsoons there's bustle people are out in the street helping each other this was this was weird yeah for houston i mean we ended up having a shelter in place order you know but even with that uh there's not a whole lot of enforcement so i mean the streets were more bare than usual maybe uh, you know people weren't commuting to work as much as they would have been otherwise but it wasn't completely bare like i've seen other places in the world um there were definitely still people going around and of course the essential workers are still required to show up um and and so in that way it didn't come to quite the same complete standstill um also i just want to to not minimize the impact of hurricanes like i know i said they come and they go obviously the aftermath stays right and there are still people rebuilding from hurricane harvey in 2017 um but but it's also something where after it goes then you can start rebuilding right whereas this is something that's gone on for so long and you don't know when or how you're going to be able to even start rebuilding you don't know what you're dealing with i mean it's i completely not to minimize floods in bombay either because people um are made homeless by our floods every year and it's same property loss and money and every single year you know roads have to be repaved and maintained and they're not done that well all that kind of stuff it just definitely floods are crazy but it just this was just so different right this was just something else altogether even though we're all used to natural disasters and those kind of things to a certain extent this was something else actually i think after the who announced the pandemic that was like around i think the 12th or 13th of march uh, since then and there was already talk that you know there are cases in india a lot of work stopped like schools closed down so work associated with schools you know informal workers working within schools colleges then a lot of construction sites also stopped work because of this so somehow there was i mean though there was no no talk of a lockdown no talk of what might happen because you know we've never as a country we never experienced something like this but because people started losing work there was this fear that when is this going to go on till like there was an uncertainty i would say so that uncertainty is what pushed a lot of people into a state of anxiety and then of course on you know then there was a janta curfew and then i think on 22nd we started so there was no information actually it is like you know literally suddenly so there was some uh, uh, rumors here and there for example you know one of our uh, uh, entrepreneurship ventures is uh, selling uh, um, uh, eggs or you know the local uh, poultry poultry business where the women actually do a backyard poultry and sell eggs so march first week onwards some rumors had started floating that you know the chicken actually carry the because there was a Uh, history of uh, bird flu so uh, you know there is some new flu and some new virus which has come which is passing through the chicken and suddenly this women the egg business actually had uh, gone down and there was some murmurs and some rumors as to there is some problem there is some hap- something happening and uh, uh, you know the cases are increasing but they didn't know what was actually going on there was a lot of confusion uh, unfortunately whatsapp university was spreading a lot of rumors and uh, there were a lot of problems everywhere so uh, but then one fine day suddenly the lockdown happened and the confusion actually increased big time they didn't know what was going on the challenge was you know all of us it was new to everyone all of us were thrown off our comfort zones and had to deal with it in different ways That was Marina, Sarika and Anjali. All three of them work in different contexts of community engagement. We'll learn more about the work they do and the organizations they work with in future episodes. As you can see, everyone's talking about how work started to shut down and the unprecedented or the nobody knew what we were dealing with kind of perspective of it and um 
I think that cannot be emphasized enough when uh, I think Marina was talking about how schools shut down, construction sites shut down, and work associated with that shuts down. This entire city is carried on the backs of daily wage laborers, honestly. The city functions on labor that goes very unnoticed and undervalued. Um, and when that starts to shut down, you notice the sounds in the city stop. And like I said earlier, you know, Bombay is just, it's awake all the time. It's rearing to go all the time. You never have that kind of silence. And uh, when we had the Janta curfew was like a one day curfew that was implemented prior to our full on lockdown, which was started on the 22nd of March. Even that one day, it was just unprecedented unprecedented the only time we have that level of silence in bombay is when we have an india pakistan cricket match because everyone's indoors watching the match like that's a big thing like everybody has to be inside and like watching the match but it was that that quiet was um yeah it was unfathomable and then of course you also have to factor in um, where in how 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 is information being spread sarika talks about whatsapp university which is which is funny because it's true. There's so much misinformation and so many rumors being spread. Um, and like I said, right, the city is built on the backs of daily wage laborers. So when that work stops, it's not just, okay, what's going to happen next? It's okay, how am I going to get my food next? You know? I really connect a lot with the point of information being unreliable. I mean, that I think is actually a huge piece of why there was so much anxiety here as well uh, is people were getting information from all sorts of places and the information even coming from our government was conflicting. So what was the information that was given to everyone by, by your government? Was it pretty assertive or pretty consistent or was there not very much information given at all? There was not a lot of information being given. Um, there was, I, I wouldn't say there were big problems with consistency with the messaging because in the US, like, you know, that was a big point of confusion, like, do you wear masks, do you not? That was pretty consistent. It was like, Corona is bad, Corona is dangerous, let's be safe from it. But there was no information on what do you do to really be safe from it and what's going to happen? How long is this going to last? When can I go back to work again? That information was lacking. In India, you also have to be mindful of the way information is disseminated. It's a huge country, so many different languages, so many different people, so much. And then within that, there's a trickle down of inconsistency because state governments react in one way. Central governments have something else. And you know, we had all those issues as well. Um, but we have a huge, I mean, I'm sure it's the same in the US. For us, like the social media of choice is WhatsApp, where there's all kinds of silly rumors that float on WhatsApp. And for other countries, it's like Facebook and like other sources. But it's, it's a big problem, um, definitely. So in Mumbai, you actually had a legitimate lockdown, right? What was, what was that like? And then their income was like brought down to like zero, right? Because most people lost jobs. Secondly, they're mostly migrant families who are not residents of Bombay. Uh, they're mostly from states like Uttar Pradesh, which is in the north of India, or like Bihar, which is also like in the uh, sort of northeast-ish of India. So um, uh, most what decided to stay back and not go back to their respective uh, states because they were too afraid of like not having opportunity again um and uh, there are also like a lot of single mothers in this family who used to work like as as domestic helps or like uh, um a lot of them whose husbands worked in construction but lost their jobs or like a lot of them are also widows or divorces um with like maybe like four or five children uh worried about their school or uh, tuition fee uh, worried about like just in general getting by. I think our biggest fears were, you know, what does this lockdown mean? Like no one really knew. So was it like, would it mean like you can't move? Would that mean you can't transport ration? Would that mean people can't be out at all? You know, I think that was a big fear. If we would be able to 
continue doing relief work but then i mean i mean within a day or so we figured out ways around it and it became easier for us to also do the relief and you know it, it required permissions figuring that out to nearby places uh, uh, the moment lockdown got announced they kind of went back to their villages so very few of them actually got stuck in uh, urban areas with uh, you know nothing to do most of them had gone back to their villages and as i mentioned the distance they typically migrate 2 to 3 hours away from their, their hamlets or villages so they could just go back overnight they could come back to their villages but there were a lot of confusion so the first step that we did was actually create awareness around covid you know in the local language marathi and uh, the local dialect so uh, by uh, creating so these were actually then uh, the information was spread through the, the local whatsapp groups through the local uh, you know our we have a very strong field presence so our field staff are all local tribal people so they would then uh, so we could the we sent everything on whatsapp to them and then they could they would then show it around spread awareness that how you should um, uh, be very careful about your hygiene how you should maintain social distance and the importance of masks and how locally they can just use a handkerchief to make masks they don't need to buy anything and of course nothing was available locally so the first step that we had to do was actually create this awareness and uh, that's how slowly became much more aware and they started understanding what this was all about yeah so um i hope that gives everyone a better idea of what kind of a city mumbai is and what kind of um different lives people live within the same sort of city so when the lockdown so the lockdown was announced on march 22nd um like you said we had a full lockdown so we were not it was you weren't allowed to step out of the house i remember um the address from our prime minister he basically said corona and they broke it up into koi road par na aaye which means nobody come out of the roads literally and um it it you could not step out of your house for anything besides your bare essentials um we have never had anything like that in bombay in india before uh we've had you know we've had some serious crises in these cities and i've lived through them we've had a massive terror attack that lasted for a couple of days but nothing was quite as you just cannot step out nothing had made the city fall quite as silent before and um for a lot of people i'd say for most people that means your income vanishes because your daily wage you're literally you don't have savings you're that's your daily bread and butter um and if you don't have work you don't have food it's literally that dire and i think marina talks about how a lot of people i spoke to were worked in community aid and community response roles right marina maitre even sarika who just heard um Marina talked about how that was the first concern for aid organizations if we can't step out how are we going to provide aid and people are going to need aid more than ever luckily those sort of things like eased up pretty immediately there was a parent that nobody was going to stop you from getting out to provide aid which was which was honestly um important very very important as we'll see in later episodes um but also we talked about migrants so this kind of a sudden shutdown it was very unplanned i think it was very chaotic at that moment in time i remember feeling like it was a necessary measure because we didn't nobody knew the whole world was kind of shutting down as flights were shutting down everybody was like no just haul up inside your home as you said for Houston you had to stay at home um stay in place order right that's a that's a nice term shelter in place shelter is the official word for it but it essentially means you need to stay home unless you're going out for work if you're an essential worker or to to get um right. goods right. that you need yeah so i don't think we had even essential like essential work was very narrowly defined pretty much to just medical so it was not like we had regular construction or regular production of anything happening everything kind of stopped and um yeah it was chaotic and that unplannedness the suddenness of the announcement meant that a lot of people in mumbai are migrant laborers they couldn't go back home and you you hear from those two clips there's two kind of perspectives maitre and marina tend to work more with people um who are migrants from states much further out whereas sarika works with migrants who come from closer to mumbai um so the people closer to mumbai like sarika said they were able to go home 
uh, because I think there was some window given, but there were thousands of people all across Mumbai and across other cities that couldn't go back to their places. So that was a huge issue throughout our lockdown. And that unplanning was, you know, it really, it's, de- it's really devastating to the quality of life. And it was, we'll unpack it more, I guess, in later episodes, but it kind of makes you feel, was it worth it? Um, we know that Corona is a very, very serious um, issue and everyone in all countries everywhere were locking down. So on that perspective, it's like, yeah, of course we have to do it too. We can't pretend that we're going to be saved from Corona. But in the context of India, in the context of Mumbai, having solutions that were social distancing, um, you know, wear masks, sanitize your hands, wash your hands. These are solutions that are not logical because everybody doesn't have access to running water. As Sarika said, one of the main things that their organization did in tribal areas was disseminate, use WhatsApp in a positive way, which can also be done, and disseminate information about how to make homemade masks because you can't go out and buy masks for most people. You don't have running water. And what is social distancing? in um when there's so many people living in like one small space what does that even mean how do you socially distance so i do feel that this is a recurring problem in my country and other countries like mine that have non-western contexts why don't we look for or why don't we problematize solutions that are contextual for our populations. And I get this was an unprecedented, I don't know what the solutions would be either. But that's something that I kept feeling like this is not, this is not going to work for my country and my context. And in a lot of ways, it really didn't. Um, But at the time, simultaneously, I'm not going to lie, it felt very necessary. I felt very glad that our government was taking it seriously. So it's a real paradox. Yeah, I mean, here in Houston, it was a constant debate about what's the best decision to make. You know, that was something that came up consistently in my conversations that I was having with people for the purposes of this podcast. And then even outside of this podcast, that there's just a frustration with the decisions that have been made for leadership. And there's a division based on different groups of people, kind of what they think the best decision would be. And also just in general, should this be a decision that's a blanket one that applies to everybody or should it be left to a more local decision-making process? I will say though one thing that because of the um, heaviness with which our lockdown was announced. One of the things that I feel that came out helpful is the urgency of Corona was established in the very, very beginning. There was no ideological debate about is this pandemic a real thing? Should we be worried about it? Right. Um, that had its problems because realistically speaking at that time, our numbers were not high and people were starving and which is the bigger problem. But one thing that did, come out of it is that urgency is established and Corona is here to stay, right? And I feel like everybody who would have earlier maybe not taken it as seriously, at least is taking it seriously. At least there's a social consciousness now that if you're not taking it seriously, you're doing something wrong. People are still, of course, like there are, there's still, you know, it's spreading like wildfire now because it's in the community and it's problematic and it's happening. Still, people are like there's an awareness. Corona is something to take very seriously. That long term is definitely going to be um, beneficial. Definitely, I think that was one of the biggest issues here, for sure. Is just that leadership did not set that tone of urgency from the beginning, or at the very least, it wasn't consistent across all levels of leadership. This episode, we learned about ourselves, your podcast hosts, our cities, and the hectic feelings of anxiety and uncertainty felt in Mumbai and Houston during the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. 
Next episode, join us as we question how our leadership and systems of governance have managed the pandemic so far. It's at the expense of minorities that the economy keeps running. It seems like, if anything, deaths are probably being underreported. There is a huge gap in uh, what the government uh, uh, across the world, I would say, really wants and what the people really want or what the people can do. That's next time on Learning in a Time of Corona. To learn more about the topics we touch on, the people we interviewed, and the organizations they work with, visit our website, learninginatimeofcorona.com. This podcast is written and produced by Laurel Bingman and Gauravi Lobo. Music and sound mixing by Shikharnath Qureshi. Special thanks to the University of Toronto for funding this project.